Hello and welcome to this teaching. The title of this lesson is History of Kingdom Lineage and the subtitle is The Context of Life Today. This is all based on the timeless universal principles of scripture. But to get us started, let, us, uh, let me read to you a quote from Dudley Hall's book, Orphans No More, Learning to Live Loved, which is about uh, the importance of living in light of history. So let's hear what he has to say. It is vital that we know where we live in the timeline of history. We are not yet in the culmination phase of history, but we're not in the preparation phase either. We live after the battle has been won, and we're privileged to enforce it on earth, waiting for the full revelation of the sons of God and the final restoration of all things. Well, that's a great context for us to consider as we think about history. Many times we view history negatively. It's just, uh, it's not important to us. We disregard it and therefore we're not students of it. We need to be students of history because we live in a historical context. So to kind of set the stage for what I want to teach in this lesson, let's, uh, let's begin by considering what it's like to think as a Christian. I call this thinking Christianly. Now consider you, that you're in a boat a rowboat specifically, you're in the middle of the ocean. This, the, cl the clouds are over, it's overcast, so you can't see the stars. You can't see the sun. Uh, you can't see land. You don't have a compass. You don't have a map. You don't have anything. Well, what do you do? You've got you've to get to land to survive, and you don't know how to get there. You don't know which way to go. Well, this is imagery for what life is like without Christ. When we live without Christ, we are lost and confused. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to go. We don't know how to get to where we need to get to, to be able to live. And so we have to be clear that we have to get a compass. We need a map. We need to be able to get our, our bearings and know where we are. And that all comes from having a, the correct compass. The only correct compass is the compass that's given to us by our creator. He has given us the Holy Bible, the scripture, as the way to guide us into life. So it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, when you live, you know, the time of your life, everything comes down to this simple thing. Is your starting point the word of God for all of life, everything in life? Because scripture provides us the timeless universal principles called TUP that govern his universe and the principles, therefore, that we need to live well in his universe. So as we think about history, we must think about history in light of what scripture has to say. Some people have broken down biblical history into four chapters. They call it the four chapter gospel, the four chapter good news. That's okay. It's acceptable to me. But let me, and I'm going to use that imagery to kind of set the stage for talking more about history in this lesson. First, there is a creation account. We've got to be clear we're in a created universe. We're not in an evolved universe. We're not in a universe that came about through some random chance. It was intentionally, sovereignly created by the creator to serve his purpose. And when he created it, he had the uncontested rule over his creation. And the foundational principle, the axiomatic principle for everyone in every situation in life is to remember that in the beginning, God. 
There's nothing that, that bypasses that reality, nothing that goes around it, nothing that's exempt from it. Everything goes back to God. Whatever it is you know, whatever you understand, whatever wisdom you think you have, whatever ability to succeed in life that, that you think you have, that all comes from God. He alone is the source of all. When he created us, he created us to be his ruling agents. We have a mandate, a creation mandate, and I'm going to suggest that this mandate is the great commission of mankind. In recent you know, uh, decades, or I must say recent centuries, mankind has, uh, particularly Christians, have presumed that there is another great commission, and that's a great commission to try to evangelize the world. Well, hopefully as we go through this background in history tonight, you'll see that's probably not a great way to think about it. A much better way to think about the Great Commission is the creation mandate of Genesis 1. The very first chapter of the first book of the Bible tells us why God made mankind and his purpose for mankind and the blessing he gave on mankind. He blessed them to do two things, to multiply or reproduce and to subdue, take dominion, to be his ruling agents, to represent him. That's the creation mandate, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I've quoted on the slide here, just verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So this is the charge of mankind from the beginning. The next chapter is the fall of mankind. Mankind was not created fallen. He was created good. But mankind fell. And the fall of mankind is one of the great mysteries of Christianity and of, of all of life. How is it that a holy God could even allow this to happen in a universe that he is in control of? But he did. We have to recognize he must have a purpose in allowing this to happen. And, and his purpose is good. As we recognize his purpose, then we we are we can understand something of the value that he puts on dealing with fallen mankind. So what you have here is the rule of the creator now is contested by the sin of Adam and Eve. This is Genesis chapter three. With the entrance of sin into humanity, humans think they can do things better than God. They at least try to be equal with God. So this is called humanism when humans try to play God. This is also known as orphanity. Orphanity is when we're trying to live independent of the Heavenly Father. Orphans are disconnected from fathers and mothers. Well, that's why we are inherently spiritually disconnected. Now, we all have a natural biological father and mother. We can't avoid that reality. But we, we come into the world in this fallen state that Adam and Eve introduced when they sinned. And so we come in spiritually dead. So we are spiritually separated from the Father. So that's why we're orphans. Orphans don't live as sons and daughters of the King. So we are impaired in our ability to obey the creation mandate. We don't know how impaired we are. Uh, the, one of the major points of the Old Testament is to reveal the depth of human depravity. It's called total depravity. That's the theological term. Now, it doesn't mean that mankind can't do something that aligns with God, something that would be considered, quote, good. Mankind can do that. But what it means is mankind totally lacks the ability to do enough good to meet God's standards. 
So that's what total depravity refers to. So the, we are humanly impotent, that is, we lack the power to be able to satisfy the righteous demands of our Creator. Now, we have some limited common grace by which we can exist. Common grace is the grace gives, that God gives to all humanity in every place of the world to be able to survive in his universe while mankind is in a fallen state for a period of time. It is not unlimited common grace. It is limited common grace, limited in time, limited in extent to which we can do things that please God. It is not salvific in the sense that we, we can never use common grace to overcome total depravity. That doesn't work that way. Common grace just enables us to survive, but we're surviving under judgment. We don't have salvation from that judgment. And all of this is an expression of the forbearance of God. We have a God who, at the fall of mankind, could have fully executed the judgment that it was due mankind for that sin, but instead he executed part of it then and deferred part of it. That's called forbearance. He, for, he forbore, and because of that, we exist. If he didn't forbear, then no human beings would exist because Adam and Eve would never have reproduced. They would have been judged and it would have been over. But because they were allowed to reproduce, then we have humanity as we know it today. It's an expression of his forbearance. And his mercy and his grace, his redemptive nature, all of these wonderful things. And we have in Genesis 3.15, the very first proclamation of the good news. Here's the good news as, as recorded by Moses in Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent as part of his judgment, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman represents those who are part of the kingdom of God. The seed of the serpent represents those who are part of the kingdom of the spirit of Antichrist or the kingdom of darkness. And you can see the ultimate end is that the kingdom of darkness will have some success. They will bruise the heel. But bruising the heel of someone is not a fatal wound. But the kingdom of God, that is the seed of the woman, will bruise the head, which that is fatal. When you bruise the head, that can be a fatal wound. So the imagery here is of a great battle, which is the battle of history, the battle of good and evil, right and wrong, which has historically been the battle of, and will be battled till the end. But the end has been settled. That is, the seed of the woman will prevail. And of course, this is a reference to Christ and those that come to Christ. So this is the fall and the setup now for the rest of scripture. Genesis 3 now to Revelation 20 is the rest of scripture. And then we have the final two chapters, Revelation 21, 22, which talk about the last chapter. I'll get to that in a moment. So Genesis 1 and 2 are the creation account. Genesis 3 is the fall. And then starting after Genesis 3, we have now the rest of history, which we call the meta narrative. This is the meta narrative of redemption. It is a time when the rule of God is, is being contested. The enemies of, of uh, Satan, the spirit of Antichrist, are opposing the representatives of Christ. 
And we have this kingdom of, of God versus the kingdom of darkness or kingdom of man. Augustine put this the city of man versus the city of God in trying to explain this. My friend Dennis Peacock calls it the war between two seeds. It's, the, it's this war here that we're in the midst of that characterizes our life because all of us living today are living in this meta narrative in this battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. There is divine potency to be, to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That is part of the mercy of God and the grace of God. The kingdom of darkness is the default state for fallen mankind. The kingdom of light is the redeemed state of fallen mankind. And in this redeemed state, orphanity is defeated in Christ. Furthermore, at the end of this time, we will have a universal resurrection, a parousia, which is the return of Christ. He's already come once to do his work to redeem mankind. And there will finally be a judgment, full judgment. The forbearance of full judgment has been postponed from Genesis 3 till Revelation 20. And so the final judgment is where everyone will be resurrected. It doesn't matter who you are. Every person that's ever lived will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for their lives. The difference between the two people there, <clears throat> the people that will go into the kingdom of, of uh or excuse me, the lake of fire versus those that will go into eternal life, that difference comes not, is not based on their works, though they will account for their works. Everyone will stand before the Lord and find themselves deficient. However, there will be another book there. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is recorded in that Lamb's Book of Life, then you get a pass. That is, you will not be sent into the lake of fire. You'll be sent into the new creation and live with Christ forever. So that's the beauty of the redemptive work of Christ. The meta narrative is about God executing this plan of redemption to redeem a people for himself. And one of the things we have to be clear on is that God has decided what this is gonna look like. We immediately come up and conjure up ideas about how this should look. And we have to be very, very humble before the Lord and know it's not going to look the way we want it to look. It's going to be a remnant. Jesus is the one that told us in Matthew 7, narrow is the way that leads to life and few enter thereby. Broad is the way that leads to destruction and many enter thereby. So we have to be very clear. This is God's plan. It doesn't fit the way we think about things. We like to think God is just going to be merciful and save everyone well, that would be called universalism. That has not appeared to be the teaching of Scripture. Scripture teaches that we have a remnant that will be the ecclesia, the people of God, that God is building. Throughout history, throughout the meta-narrative, the, the, the struggle has been to define and build the ecclesia of God, and that struggle continues in the war between two seeds. In the battle between the city of man and city of God, it's about the people of God recognizing who's going to be delivered, redeemed from the city of man, and been put into the city of God. So this is the meta narrative, and we're going to unpack this a little bit more in the rest of the lesson. But let me finish this summary slide with one, the one last chapter, and that is the new creation. You see, in the beginning, we have a creation and the uncontested rule of, of God in the beginning. We have the fall in the meta narrative where we have the rule of God is contested 
And with that, the people of God are being identified. And finally, in the new creation, we will have the uncontested rule of God restored and the bride of Christ will be prepared and identified. So the people of God will be known, fully known, fully revealed. So the new creation is about those two things. Now that's very different from how we normally are thinking today. Uh, it seems that most of us in various paradigms of Christianity are thinking about trying to get everybody on the world redeemed or get it, we call it saved. Um, well, that's probably not what God is doing. Uh, if we look at scripture and ask ourselves, what is he doing? I think what I've got on the slide is a better picture of what scripture seems to tell us about what he's doing. Now, what I want to do now is, is to move into the meta narrative and give you some more details of how this is playing out. So first we have a creation in about 4,000 BC. And you can see I'm, I'm not, a, I don't believe in the, uh, the old earth theory. I believe in the new earth theory. Uh, and I think this, this is, this picture is the reality of scripture. The problem with the older theories is built on a principle of uniformitarianism, which says that things have always happened the way they happen today. And there's never been a cataclysmic event. That's a predicate. Well, that's wrong. The flood was a cataclysmic event. So that inherently that theory of the, that on which the, the old earth idea is built is flawed. So I don't give any credence to that. So I, I, I give credence to the, the new earth theory, which suggests, based on looking at scripture, that creation was something like 4000 BC, or as I'm speaking today in the 21st century, about, about a little over 6,000 years ago. We have there the creation mandate, the great commission of mankind to be God's ruling agents. And we're to do that by multiplying ourselves and exercising dominion, <clears throat> covering the earth and bringing the rule of God and mastering the technology God has put into his universe to bring everything under the rule of God. So that's our mandate. That continues to be our mandate, regardless of the reality of sin in our universe. Then we have the fall of mankind. Remember the creation mandate still in force. And now mankind is trying to fulfill the creation mandate as orphans separated from God as humanists thinking that they can be God. And therefore, all of these crazy worldviews that we run into in the world today and historically have existed, whether it's Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Chinese folk religion, you know, secular humanism, all of these are forms of humanism. Humanism is man-made worldviews, man-made views of God. There is one God, who has created everything. He exists in a triune person we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One essence, three persons, and this is the God of the Bible. This is the God that explains everything in reality to us. But we're in this orphan state. We don't understand and we reject most of God's revelation, but we have to have it to live. So we we accept what we have to accept to live, but we don't accept enough. We have to accept Christ if we want to live eternally. So this orphanity plagues us. We have the promise of the Prodevangelum, which is the meta narrative of redemption that's in play. That's going on. So that's that's the setup now. Then we have the next great event was the cataclysmic event of the worldwide flood. And it's interesting that in traditions all over the world, 
there is a story of a flood that's virtually ubiquitous in every society of the world. This flood covered the world. It was a massive cataclysmic event that changed a lot of things, including the environment of the earth. Apparently, we went from a, a fairly stable climate, climate environment to an unstable climate environment. We had a fairly stable geophysical climate. Now we have you know, volcanoes and various earthquakes and things like that that are disrupting us. So all of these things remind us of sin that's brought this kind of chaos into our world. So the flood was, was 20, about 2500 BC. And then we have, after the flood, about 400 years later, we have the Tower of Babel. You see, with the flood, we had a basically a, a reboot, the meaning all of humanity that existed from Adam and Eve to the time of the flood, some 1,500 years, there was a lot of people. They did a lot of multiplying. But the hearts of the people were turned to evil. And it's that evil that's being judged here to remind us that the ultimate judgment for sin has not been affected. God's forbearance continues. After the flood, we have eight people. In theory, there are eight righteous people, but we discover very quickly within 400 years that they're very self-centered people because the Tower of Babel is a picture, a representation of the fallen condition of mankind. And the main problem here is mankind is still trying to play God. Mankind is trying to self-glorify. And so God allows the Tower of Babel to reveal that truth and then with that, he present, provides judgment on them for, for that. So now further judgment on humanity, it comes in the form of ethnicities and languages. So that's how ethnicities and languages have come about. They have not evolved. They're the, they're the product of judgment. But then God is merciful and gracious, is going to remind us that he will redeem. And he's going to do this through a promise. Because so far, in the first over 2,000 years of human history, mankind has demonstrated that mankind cannot self-save. Mankind cannot redeem himself. Mankind cannot do the things needed to meet God's righteous standards. So God's saying here with the Abrahamic promise, I will do it myself. I will redeem my people. Now, he's not seeing all people, but his people, the Abrahamic promise had three components. It had a land, a people, and a blessing. And we know that the land, you know, is a reference to eternal life. The people is a reference to the people of God that he will redeem out of all humanity. And of course, the blessing is the work of Jesus to redeem fallen mankind from sin and the impact of sin. So this is where, this is the first 2,000 years of history. So let's go on to the next roughly 2,000 years. What we have in the rest of the Old Testament, you see, what, what's covered in Genesis 1 through 12 is simply 2,000 years of history. From Genesis 12 now to the end of the Old Testament is another 2,000 years. So what God starts working on then at his sovereign pleasure and for his purposes is a people of God. This is called the Old Testament Ecclesia. Uh, in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, the people of God were referred to as the Ecclesia. Ecclesia is a Greek word 
that's used by Jesus to talk about what he's going to do after he's gone. He's going to build his ecclesia. So the Greek word ecclesia is not a religious term. It is really a term used for, for government, for civil government. It's a compound word. Ek means out of and kaleo is called. It's a called out group of people who have been assigned responsibility to solve a problem. Well, that's what we are. We're the people of God. We're called out to represent him, be his ruling agents on earth. Sin is impairing our ability to do that. So God is redeeming an ecclesia out of fallen humanity. In the Old Testament, he first wanted to be sure that we are very clear the reality of how fallen we are. We are in sin and been bondage to sin. We love darkness rather than light. We cannot see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of God unless we have divine power come upon us and regenerate us. That's exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So we have the redemption from bondage is the, one of the first events of the Old Testament uh, ecclesia, the people of God. When the Israelites, the, the descendants of Abraham, who were, who were the people chosen to be his people, they, the ethnic is, uh, Israelites wound up in bondage. God redeemed them from that bondage. And after he redeemed them, he gave them a law. Now, why did he give them a law? He gave them a law again to show them what was in them. God fully knows what's in mankind, but mankind doesn't know what's in mankind. So we have a law here to reveal the sin that's in us. That's exactly what Paul tells us in Galatians 3. He explains the purpose of the law was to reveal the sin of humanity. And we even, he even goes through letting the Israelites do the things they want to do. You want kings? Fine, you can have kings. You can just you can do whatever you want to do. I've given you a revelation that's in the law. I've told you to follow it. I've told you if you don't follow it, you're going to be judged. But they choose to not follow it anyway, and they get judged, and they wind up in bondage. But God is merciful, so he will redeem them. After 70 years in bondage, he begins to reassemble his people. We have a partial restoration somewhere around 450 B.C. So the bondage, the redemptions for bondage happen uh, around 1,000 thereabouts. Um, and then they go into bondage somewhere around 520 you know, thereabouts B.C., and now at 450, they're coming out of bondage. It's a partial restoration. It's not complete because, again, the people of God are give, being given more opportunity to really understand the lessons. If you don't understand the lessons of how we are impotent to be able to meet God's righteous standards, we keep trying to do it ourselves. We keep trying to build towers of Babel. Even though we've got the revelation of, of the failure of that, we can't, can't seem to get it. We're slow learners. We're remedial people. So God is patiently working with us. And then we have the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. The blessing would come through Jesus. This is where he's going to restore and redemptively do for mankind what mankind could never do for himself. He's going to become incarnate himself. There is no other worldview where the God of that worldview becomes incarnate and sacrifices himself for his people. 
this is what Christianity's got a lot of uniquenesses. This is one of the great uniquenesses is the hypostatic union, God becoming man in some way, some mysterious way that we don't fully understand. It's kind of like the Trinity. We don't understand one essence manifesting in three persons, but that appears to be what scripture reveals. We don't understand likewise the, the hypostatic union. That is the union of God and man in Christ. He was fully man, fully God. So he was two essences in one person. So you can see the complexities of, of the scriptural record. And when you step back and realize, well, how would I, why would I ever expect to fully understand God? He is so big and so far beyond me. And if you spent any time studying any of God's creation in depth, it doesn't take long before you get overwhelmed with the, the amazing complexities of the universe and how it all works together so beautifully. You're saying, wow, how could this be? No human being can think this stuff up. This is, this is way beyond us. So there's always going to be things about God that we can't fully know. You know, we can know him, but not fully know him. We can understand something about God, but not fully understand. We can comprehend something, but not fully comprehend. We have to understand there's always a mystery associated with God. It's called the, the, the incomprehensibility of God. It means that in the final analysis, there'll be things we just won't be able to fully understand. So the incarnation is one of those things. Jesus comes as a person a human being. He lives a life. He goes through being a, a son, being an apprentice carpenter and his father, becoming a master carpenter. That's the first 30 years of his life. And then in the last three years, he becomes an itinerant teacher. And he, he focuses on developing 12 men to fulfill his purpose. He has a destiny to prepare those men and to go and die on the cross for the sins of humanity. That's his destiny. His legacy would be done through his disciples, and that would be to build his ecclesia. So we can see Jesus' coming was pivotal. It's solving the problems and setting up for the rest of time to the parousia and the final judgment. Everything's being set up. So the creation mandate can be fulfilled at a new level now, and ultimately the first proclamation of the good news in Genesis 3.15 will be fulfilled in Jesus. So that's what's coming. So when Jesus died, he was resurrected, and for 40 days he was here with his followers, validating that the Words of scripture were indeed true. The sacrifice of Jesus had been accepted by the Father, and now there is a new way to build the ecclesia. An ecclesia built on the law failed because it depended on man's obedience. Now we have an ecclesia based on the obedience of Christ, and now the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit and those who are part of the ecclesia, and we have a new reality. It's the New Testament ecclesia. So that's where we're living today. So we, have, we are now, since about 30 AD, we are living in this reality. So starting in about the first 300 years of Christianity, you have the ecclesia 
the New Testament ecclesia trying to understand its way, trying to understand how it's going to move forward, understanding what it means to be now a Christian. What does that mean? All that's got to get sorted out. They have the Old Testament scripture, and Christianity is definitely rooted and firmly in the Old Testament. There are so many prophecies in the Old Testament referring to Jesus as Lord and Christ. All those things are, are came came true when Christ came, and they're now being studied and understood at a whole new level. So the, the scripture for the first 300 years was the Old Testament and some apostolic writings helping us understand the Old Testament in light of the truth that Jesus was Lord in Christ. During this time, it was a persecuted time, a time when the people of God were not welcome. All worldviews were welcomed except Christianity. Christianity was persecuted. And this went on till about 325 AD. And then Christianity was received and it was accepted. It was uh, allowed to prosper. So for the next 700 years, up until about 1000 AD, the first thousand years of church history, there is a unified ecclesia. There is now an unpersecuted ecclesia in the last 70% of that time frame, the last 700 years. And during that time, the church councils began to meet to hammer out the details of what it meant to be a Christian. They hammered out the details of who God was, who is the Father, who's the Son, who's the Holy Spirit, the nature of man of being fallen and total depravity got hammered out. They hammered out you know, what the body, the, the people of God were about and what God was trying to do. A lot of things got dis discussed, debated, and resolved. So we have a lot of church history from which we build our Christian thinking. Then we have the first split in the church called the East-West Schism in 1054. This is when the Eastern Church was largely getting very concerned about the Western Church, which was being which was based in Rome. It was the the Western Church was still a, a lot of Roman thinking in it, and political power was very important to them. The Eastern Church recognized that you're getting too focused on political power, you're getting too focused on controlling things, you're getting too focused on money, okay? you're getting too focused on autocratic rule of this guy you call a pope. So this split developed in 1054, the first church split in 1,000 year history of the Ecclesia. And the Western church continued to its along its path. The Eastern church pulled away from it. Then we have on the way to the next major split, which would be 500 years later, we have scholarship beginning to kick in a new level where they're going deeper and deeper. And now the focus on the scholarship is on the relationship of faith and works or faith and reason. How do we understand faith and reason? So we have scholasticism kicking in and nominalism, which was a very toxic idea. Nominalism became a stepping stone for humanism to rise up in the ecclesia. And it largely went undetected for a long period of time. The Christian theologians didn't really get it how toxic nominalism would become. Then the Reformation came. The Reformation was 16th century. Again, this we're about you know about uh, um, you know 15 centuries, 15 to 16th centuries downstream of the foundation of Christianity. We've had one church split, and when it starts out, the Reformation doesn't start out with the the idea of being a split. 
it starts out with purification. How can we purify the church? Can we deal with the ecclesia and make it more Christ-like, Christ-centric? And along the way, they discovered that there wasn't an openness to change, that the ecclesia wanted to continue the way it was, largely led by the Pope in Rome, who was an autocrat and was all into money and power and fame and, and control. And over time, it just became clear there was no way to compromise, no way to, to reform the Roman Catholic Church. And so you wind up with now the split that's known as Protestantism. Protestantism, you know, there were a lot of paradigms of it. It wasn't just one paradigm. You had the Lutheran paradigm. You had the Anabaptists. You had the Calvinist. So, and you had these various ways of seeing things and debates. We also, what rose up during that time was the Anglican world. So you have a lot of splits that began to happen and there were attempts to unify, but none of the attempts really worked all that well. And there was a lot of debate and ultimately bloodshed. Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs records a lot of the martyrs that happened, people dying for the faith, Protestants fighting against Protestants. Eventually, they came to their senses and realized that no one had a lock on truth. If that was true, then we need to re respect one another. We can have differences, but we need to have be clear on what our common agreement is. Christ, the work of Christ, salvation by grace through faith in Christ. The scripture is our authority. No human being is exalted like a pope. We are looking to Jesus, who is the head of the ecclesia, not the pope. So they began to sort through and agree on a lot of things, and while other things they might disagree on. And so they, keep, they were able to keep their separate beliefs, while they believed in the common, the common good of the Christian world, the Protestant Christian world. So this led, led to denominationalism where you've got all these various segments of tenets of faith. Then you had in the 18th century, uh, a new movement came along and I'm gonna spend some time on this. This was the Great Awakening. Uh, the Great Awakening uh, happened because there were godly men that looked around and noted that that there were a lot of professing Christians living like pagans and they were trying to, to deal with this. How do we, how do we help these people? Uh, so they viewed them as people that had lost their life. So that's where the term revivalism come in. It's revive them. They were alive. Now they're dead. We've got to revive them. So that's the concept of revivalism. The target of the revivalist was not the unsaved world. It was the people that professed to be Christians that were living like the unsaved world. So that was the beginning of the Great Awakening. Now, the Great Awakening started in many ways uh, in good, on, a, on a good basis, but it became uh, distorted pretty soon. And we're going to go through some of those key points of distortion in a few minutes. But I want to just go on real quickly. After the Great Awakening, toward the end of the Great Awakening, something else happened. And this is when humanism really rose up at an unprecedented level in history. There was an experiment in France called the French Enlightenment, which was an attempt to absolutely eradicate society of any vestige of God. They wanted a, a culture built solely based on human thinking. So this was humanism fully manifested. It was a toxic experiment. It was a bloody experiment. It didn't last long, but it, it sowed the seeds for what would happen for the next 200 plus years. And we're living downstream of that. 
we are about 200 plus years downstream of that here in the early part of the 21st century. And it's still very much alive and very much this French Enlightenment humanism is very much uh, alive in our culture today and playing out in our culture. Now, what they call these people in the French Enlightenment, they were called revolutionaries. And the people that opposed them were called anti-revolutionaries. So if you know Christ, by definition, you're an anti-revolutionary. If you don't know Christ, uh, you are, you're probably a revolutionary and not even realized you are because you are a humanist. You're trying to, to make up your own way through life. You're not looking to God to guide you or direct you. All right, so let's just take a few minutes here and take a look at the Great Awakening and the, and the revolution that started in the 18th century. The Great Awakening, in many ways, was, um, was a noble thing. It was an attempt to address some real deficiencies among those who claimed to be Christians. But it got to be an ego thing, too, as the various leaders of this movement began to compete. They competed for audiences. They competed, competed for what they called fruit. Their idea of fruit was simply a profession of faith or a baptism, that kind of thing. So as, as they began to compete, they began to compromise their techniques. They began to adopt worldly practices. They began to abandon biblical truth to a degree. So one of the things that they did was they started talking about Christianity as an emotional experience, coming to Christ as an emotional experience, which means you're no longer talking about the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news of the kingdom of God, which was the gospel of Jesus, was about God being ruled, God being holistically the ruler of your life. In every way, he was in charge. He was the ruler. So they start truncating that and saying, it's not so much about God being Lord. It's about going to heaven. So it's about, you know, you want to be sure you have your ticket of heaven and then you can go live the way you want to live. That became the the unexpressed message, the inferred message, the implied message, the non-spoken message. And so to get people to experience this, they used emotionalism. They tied emotions. They said, if you're feeling some emotion in this meeting, if the speaker is somebody stirring you up, that's the Holy Spirit, and you want to respond to it and receive Christ and be baptized or make a profession of faith or say a sinner's prayer, something like that. So conversion became everything. You could say conversion became discipleship because there wasn't really any discipleship. It was just conversion. Salvation was an event, not a process. You understand, I hope that there are three tenses of salvation and, and we'll talk about that tomorrow in the next lesson, but you got to really be clear that salvation will take the rest of your life. There's past, present, future tense. So it's a process. It's not an event. So they that what happened with the Great Awakening is they, they lopped off the present and future tense and just focused on, you know, past tense. Have you made a profession of faith? Have you been baptized? Worship became an event, no longer a lifestyle. Jesus said, we worship in spirit and in truth. And when asked where, he said, it's not in a place, which implies it's everywhere all the time. So worship is supposed to be a lifestyle that we live, and we've turned it into an event. And we've made disciples are no more than simply converts. So that's that's the distortion that began, the first level of distortion. The next level of distortion was the disdain for training. 
many of the people that were viewed as dead in the early part of the 18th century were being taught theologically by well-trained and well-educated teachers. But they viewed, the, the revivalists saw this and said, you know, this teaching is not doing anything. It's not, there's no value. And so they began to denigrate teaching. They denigrated the history of the creeds and confessions and all the, the findings of church history. They denigrated formal theological training. They even denigrated the Old Testament, which was the scripture for the church the first 300 years of its existence. It was a foundation of the New Testament ecclesia. And with it, they denigrated the Great Commission of Genesis 1, 26 through 28. They began to focus on evangelism getting people to make professions of faith because they weren't looking to make disciples. They were looking for converts and they would call a convert a disciple. Hopefully we have enough wisdom to recognize that that's really not a very good definition. And then we have human autonomy. Another, another part of what happened was this whole stress on individualism. You see, when you go back to the 18th century, People lived in covenant communities. We don't think about that today. We think about being very individualistic. You know, I do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Nobody tells me what to do. We think that's a good thing. That's the toxicity of human autonomy. It makes you think you're God. It's humanism, individualism, volunteerism. Whatever community you're part of, you didn't voluntarily join it. God ordained that you be there and you can't voluntarily leave. You have to be sent. You should have been sent there and you stay there till you're sent out. And that takes other people involved in your life. And it does not mean you get the trump card and you get to decide. Well, that's really hard. So human autonomy became a really, really big thing in the 18th century. And in fact, infected this movement called the Great Awakening. And it made people think that salvation was a personal choice. It's real easy to think that because it looks like it's a personal choice, we don't really get it. That as Jesus told his followers in John 15, he said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. It wasn't your personal choice. You were intercepted, just like the apostle Paul was intercepted on the road to Damascus. He was not choosing Jesus. So we have to get clear that, that God is the one doing the choosing. But what happened in the Great Awakening, we got very confused because of all this stress on personal choice and with it, the pursuit of personal happiness. That became a big thing for the American Revolution as if there was this right entitlement for us to go after happiness. Happiness being defined as having circumstances that you like. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Joy, you can have joy anywhere. Joy is not dependent on circumstances. The joy of the Lord is your strength no matter what goes on. But happiness is about having happy circumstances, pleasant circumstances. So we have to get clear that our call as Christians is to a life of joy. And we can have the joy of the Lord no matter what. But it, that got lost here in the Great Awakening. And finally, you want to point out the focus on celebrity leaders. And one of the, uh, the greatest of the revivalists was John Wesley. And John Wesley... Um, in many ways, he was very egocentric, uh, and he was all about him. 
he was exposed to true discipleship early in his life. He got a chance to see uh, some of the uh, some of the descendants of John Huss, who, who were very, very committed uh, Moravians who lived the faith well. They, they lived Christianity as a lifestyle. He got a chance to see it up close and personal, spend time with it. He recognized the value of it, but he just viewed it as taking too long, too much time. He needed to go save a bunch of people. And so he, he rejected it and went after a great awakening paradigm. And, and he led the way to distort the paradigm. And he led the way into the celebrity leader focus where it was all about finding a celebrity leader and being converted under them. That became a big deal. And so today we're living 200 plus years downstream, celebrity leader models for organizations, whether it's businesses or churches or whatever, it is the model. And so these are the things that have been toxic to Christianity over the years that have really, really hurt our ability to really move forward with Christ as well as we should. I'm not questioning that some people may have come to Christ through a great awakening churches. I did. That's how I came to Christ. But it was in studying the scripture that I came to understand more fully the truth of, what, of my background and what needed to change in me to better align with scripture. And that's what we should always be asking. What, what reformation needs to happen in me? Because there's always reformation that needs to happen. The reformers, the, be, the best reformers understood reformation would never be, be completed. If we were true to the, the scripture, we would be learning and growing as the Holy Spirit revealed truth to us. We would learn and grow and we would continually change. And so that's where we need to live. But celebrity leaders were not about that. They were about their celebrity. They were about being celebrated. They were about being the ones that everybody's talking about and exalting. They were building towers of Babel is what they were doing. And sadly, that that's just infected us greatly even to today. For example, the terminology we will use is that so-and-so's church. You probably heard that. Uh, referring to a person and saying like it's his church, that is really, really out of bounds. Jesus is the head of the church. There's no human that's the head of any local church. We are simply his servants. And so we've got to die to the celebrity leader model if we're going to really mature in Christ and move away from orphanity into true, effective growth in Christ. Well, now I want to conclude this discussion on history by talking about what's happened in the last 225 years, specifically key elements that are really, really critical to us if we're going to fight the battles that we've been called to fight better than our ancestors have fought them, then we need to know some things. Number one, we need to recognize that there were Christians who saw the toxicity of the French Revolution and what it meant and what the revolutionaries were all about. And they were the anti-revolutionaries. They believed Jesus is Lord of all, everything. So one of these men was Grand Priester. He fought, that was his main objective in life was to, to understand the French Enlightenment, which was not Enlightenment, was French darkness is really what it was, and, and draw the lessons from it. And he actually wrote a book, which you can get a copy of his book. I have a copy of his book where he has gone through and evaluated uh, that particular incident in history from a Christian worldview. And that's very helpful. And he went on and produced a son. 
His son's name was Abraham Kuyper. Now you may have heard of Kuyper. Hopefully you have. Kuyper was a great Dutch theologian. By the way, Van Priester was Dutch too. He was a great Dutch theologian of the latter part of the 19th, early part of the 20th century. His big thing was holism. Jesus is Lord of all. We buy, basically today, we are, we are largely dualistic. That is, we say Jesus is Lord of some. Now, we don't use those words because that doesn't sound good. So we call, we call ourselves holists, but really we're not. You have to look at a person's life, how they're living, how they're thinking about things. I'll give you a simple example of how this works out. I've, I've, you know, I teach a lot about personal calling, and I've talked to a lot of pastors about bringing that teaching into their communities. And the typical thing I hear from pastors is that they're eager to the idea of calling. Yeah, we need to find out what the call of God is on people. But then when they go to apply it, what they want to do is find out the call of God on you to figure out how to use you to build their Tower of Babel. That's what they really try to do. Now, they don't use that language. I'm using the language to try to get your attention and try to help you understand the toxicity of this. You see, they, they don't ever think about, or at least I have rarely seen them think about the call of God beyond the local church. It's, okay, I want to understand what you can do within the context of our community here to help us grow, become bigger, have more people. Okay, that's what we want to do. See, that's, this is the dualism in us. We should be recognizing the call of God encompasses all of life, everything in life, and begin to train our people to find that call in every area of life and quit trying to build Towers of Babel that we would call local churches. So Kuyper saw this and began to pioneer this. Another great Dutch theologian that came along was Cornelius Van Til. He was very influenced by Kuyper. Uh, I don't know that he considered himself a son of Kuyper, but uh, they're, they're contemporaneous to some degree, um, and he certainly read a lot of Kuiper, appreciated Kuiper, and he recognized the importance of getting really settled on the Word of God. The Word of God is, is the revelation of holism. Jesus is Lord of everything. It's the starting point, the RK of everything. And specifically, it reveals the triune God of the Bible, which is the only correct RK to build your worldview. Every other worldview is built on some other RK. And so he, he championed uh, presuppositional apologetics based on the premise of the Bible. So he really helped facilitate clarity that the Bible is critical for you as Christians, every Christian, to get clear. It is the Word of God, the inspired inerrant, infallible word of God that is the basis of all of our thinking. If you don't have that as the anchor of your thinking, then you're going to wind up being confused because you won't know what to be the anchor you're thinking on. You've got to get clear it's the Bible. After Cornelius Van Til, one of his students was R.J. Rushdoony. And R.J. Rushdoony continued the holistic thinking, the anti-revolutionary thinking, the focus on the Bible to talk about dominion living and homeschooling, which is now teaching our children based on a Christian worldview, true, grounded, solid Christian worldview. And of course, most of you probably know that that Rushdoony discipled a man named Dennis Peacock that many of us, I mean one of many, have been great, very blessed 
And what he has brought us is a holistic kingdom worldview, which is a far better model than what we had received with a great awakening. The great awakening worldview was very distorted and truncated now and dualistic. And now we have the holistic kingdom worldview, which is now much more robust. It's based on Jesus as Lord and Christ. This is the way to properly think. So the fact that you are listening to this tells me that perhaps you are in the lineage that I'm talking about here. These godly men who have been trying to fight the revolutionaries and the, also the Great Awakening distortions and go back and get back to truth. And we want to be in that lineage. That's the way forward. These are the people that are continuing with the Reformation. They're reforming as they find things out of line, they're bringing order aligned with biblical truth. So hopefully all of us are in this lineage and we're carrying on this lineage. We must do this. You've got revelation of it. There's no other way to live because any other way is just going to be humanistic. This is the way to live biblically. So a way to kind of help you begin to think about how to, how to live with this kind of purpose uh, is just looking at some scripture and thinking about four levels of scripture that really help you think big. First, you have to realize we have a big story, a meta narrative of history God is executing, and everyone has a role in it. Your life fits into this meta narrative, this big story. You may look at that and say, I don't see how. I don't have a clue. Most people do. That does not mean you don't. Just because you don't know something doesn't mean you don't fit. You fit. You see, God works everything after the counsel of his will. He's sovereign, intentional, and strategic. There are no accidents. You're not an accident. No one's an accident. Everyone exists for a reason. There's a purpose. Break this down even further. There's generational purpose, families, ethnic groups. You know, there's a matter of where you are geographically, what language you speak. You know, there is a purpose, a reason for your existence. You should be looking very deeply to understand your ethnicity, understand your family of origin, understand your ethnic group, understand the language, the geography that you've been placed in. All of these things are, are meaningful. They, they count toward understanding something of the call of God in your life. Then there's organizations. You, you will never fulfill the purpose of God individually until you find the organizations that you're called to be part of. Family organization, there's going to be workplace organization, there's going to be community organizations, there's going to be ecclesia, local ecclesias. All of these are organizations. God is in every one of those, executing his will, accomplishing his purpose, and even down to you specifically, individually. You have a specific purpose, a specific call from God. That's, um, that's probably the easiest one of, of these that, are, that you can begin to discern. And that is begin to look at yourself. Most people struggle with organizational purpose or family purpose. And of course, the meta narrative just seems daunting. But you can start with individual purpose. Why has God made you specifically? And he's given us a principle that we can begin to explore this. It's a C4 principle. Many of you may have seen this or know this principle. It's based on, on four components, C4, 
Calling Character Capability Commission. This principle is used in scripture in multiple texts. I just give you some examples. This is not all the text. This is just several examples where you can see the principle used to, to select people, to guide people into a purpose that God had for them to fulfill. So that's the value of the principle. You will have C4 to do what you're supposed to do. The purpose of God for your life is expressed through the C4 that he gives you. You don't give yourself C4. He gives you C4 to do something. Everyone has C4. Everyone. Now, you, you may have be underdeveloped. For example, the call of God. You may not have a sense of that. Okay? But it's there. Character. You may not have developed your character well. You can grow in character. That's your responsibility to do that. Capability. You've got skill and ability God's given to you. You may or may not have developed that. So you're responsible to develop it. And commissioning is what authority figures that God has sovereignly placed over you see about the call of God in your life and call that out and direct you to it. So this is the principle that God has ordained to use to guide people into alignment with him. So we need to embrace this principle so we can find our role first individually, then organizationally, and then generationally, and then in the meta narrative. This is the journey we're all on. This is what it is to be part of the people of God, is fulfill the purpose of God. And oh, by the way, as you do this, you will be light. I'm going to suggest to you that evangelism properly understood from Matthew 7 is being light. And the way you are light is you do the works that God has created and called you to do. That's the only way you can be light. You cannot be light doing things that you want to do or you things that you think are good. You can only be light doing the right things, the things you've been ordained and called to do. So we've got to learn how to do these things and live this way if we're going to live purposeful lives, if we're going to live in the historical context that God has placed us in. So just a real quick takeaway. To live wisely, one must contextualize one's life in the meta narrative. The levels of purpose will help you think big. You know, you've got to look, think big. You've got to know that God is so much bigger than we are, and he chooses to reveal to us at his sovereign pleasure what he's doing and at the level that he wishes to do it. There's sometimes we, we're just not going to know it all, but we'll see something. Maybe it's just a conviction that, you know, I'm doing the right thing. I know I'm supposed to do this. I don't know where it's going to go, but I know I'm supposed to do it. So you need to learn to think in terms of levels of purpose. You need to turn, learn to discover what you have C4 to do, what God has specifically created and ordained you to do. And finally, you've got to be clear that success is alignment with God, doing God's will according to God's ways and God's timing for God's glory. There's no other way to success. In God's universe, it's all about him. All about him. So I ask the Lord to give you grace and favor, to seek to serve his purpose well, to bring glory and honor to him by seeking to fulfill the purpose for which he has created you in the context of the meta narrative, in the context of your family and the generations you're part of, in the context of the organizations you've been assigned to, in every aspect of life, may you bring glory to God. May you do it for his purposes. And may you be thankful. 
In Jesus' name, amen.